we are now off and running again. March the 13th, 2016, lecture discussion number 233 on the book of Romans. I have this cool pen. It makes great noises, and I'm going to take advantage of it today, as you can see. Well, once again, it is time to insert the appropriate cliffside, always appropriate cliffside, say it with me question. Where are we now? It just so happens that we're still about reconciling Luke 14, 1 through 6, uh, with Numbers 15, 32 through 36, which is the man gathering wood on the Sabbath and the swollen man in the ruler's house on the Sabbath. Now, I emphasize Sabbath, but I also very, very sophisticated and cleverly said something else. I put wood and swollen man together. Won't do it this week, but eventually I think we will. The immediate there's my my little camera thingy. So, hi, people out there. I need to be observant of that thing now because uh, it affects my clothing and my hygiene and everything else. Uh, maybe my exercise regimen now that that thing's staring at me every Sunday. I'm not sure what I think. I have devices that will eliminate it, though. I can tell you that if it starts to bother me. <coughs> The immediate central element being in Luke 14, 1 through 6, and Numbers 15, 32 through 36 is the Sabbath. The context is the Sabbath. Recognizing that both of these passages or these events are Sabbath-based is necessary to arriving at their correct meaning. Everyone that I have ever read that has missed understood these two passages has done so because they disregarded the Sabbath. They thought it was an extraneous detail. There are no extraneous details. And certainly not the Sabbath, because the goal is always to find Christ. When you see the word Sabbath, what have you discovered? Right there, you have discovered Christ. Sabbath is Christ-centric. Jesus Christ is unified in all Sabbaths. You see the word Sabbath, you know it is a Christ reference. He is the great Sabbath rest. All, Christ, all Sabbath referrals are therefore Christ-based testimonials. They all testify of Jesus Christ. John 5.39, right? Search the scriptures, look for the word Sabbath if you want. Make it that specific. Search the scriptures, they testify of me, Christ said. So only when we have this truth about the Sabbath, or frankly about all of the Old Testament, but specifically the Sabbath today, but only when we have this truth about the Sabbath relentlessly established, then and only then do the scriptures that contain Sabbath mentions are resolvable as intended. Okay, we left off at Luke 14. This is our Luke 14 list from last week. Noticing a few things that bear repeating. I'm looking at it now and I notice that it is uh, not intact. <laughs> Apparently, I have a grandson. I know which one it is. I've seen him do it. He does it. Uh, he's fascinated with the... Uh, the uh, Holy Platinum model reversible dry erase board. I've got to kind of figure out what he's done. Especially he likes the erase part of the Holy Platinum dry erase board. It's Jacob, he delights in erasing my lists, apparently. 
parental supervision is in disarray here. Where's Grandmama? Grandmama has conceded uh, her authority. So a vacuum has resort, uh, resulted here, huh? What is it? I believe it is behold. Okay, my pen doesn't quite work as well as I'd hoped, but uh, it does make a cool sound. So F is behold. I got G, so I should be good. Uh, whenever you have a vacuum, you have a abhorrence, right? Abhorrence. Jacob apparently rushed in to provide equilibrium and high entropy. I could keep going. I won't. I'm the outside agency now, though. Can you see that? I have to provide energy. and I do it every Sunday now with Jacob uh, being destructive as he is. Have you, on a side note, since I'm here, um, the physics community long ago decided something and is beginning to, to, to come to the surface. hundred years ago, the physics community uh, decided that what we consider to be physical reality is really congealed energy. Or, if you will, compressed acted energy. They decided that in the early 1900s. We did have an earthquake the other day, didn't we? We have another one. What's the rule here? Run. Did that one work, Terry? Okay. That's okay. Wrong color is good. Throw it. I'll catch it. Okay. I didn't catch it. My hands, not what they once were. Or will they be again? Okay. Let's see. Oh, there's a tip on it. We'll, we'll make do. We'll figure it out. Maybe I'll just not write today. My point about the physics community, a hundred years ago they said that uh, what we see as physical reality, what we experience as phys- physical reality, we're so much we love our physical reality, it isn't real. Philosophically, that's been decided as well hundreds of years ago. It's not real. That's the perception. That's the observer uh, effect all of those things. This is really just supernatural light beams uh, that become conscious, self-aware, sentient beings. That's what this is. And obviously, if you have that situation, then you require an intelligent agency, an intelligent agent. Uh, creation of living souls demands a, a preeminent living soul. I can't biogenesis. I can't have life without life. There is no life without life. Life cannot come up from non-life. And I just brought it up kind of as an aside, but I hope you've noticed that um, our illiterate but nonetheless adamant New York media, what they're trumpeting now, they're cheering. They're cheering the most recent polling that demonstrates, uh, that is demonstrating this precipitous demise uh, on the belief of a creator God. In this country, for sure, but in Europe, it's ridiculous. And mainly it's amongst the millennial generation. I'm looking around to see if I have millennials here. I have a few. By few, I mean one. Yes, I think so. Correct me after. Millennial has to be between, what, 18 and 30? I think so. That's what we're deciding. 
But that that group, the 18 to 30 year olds, um, have uh, they do not believe in a creator God at a very high level. If it, it, it's a very low level, actually, and they have a corresponding acceptance of socialism. All the polling is showing that. Now, I don't need I, I for myself uh, such a poll is not just needless; it's redundancy. I expect those two to actually be together every time. It is not a surprise, it's not a coincidence that millennials are drawn to communist philosophy and atheism. That's what always happens. That's the natural expected destination of that kind of thinking. So the poll that says that simultaneously they don't believe in God and they are drawn to socialism, socialism is just communism waiting to become communism. There, That's all it is. You can say, well, there's a democratic socialist system, the dream of socialism is total government control. That, of course, is a communistic philosophy, but both of them are steeped in atheism because government replaces God, and that's how it has been for hundreds of years now. Why is it that those who flee from the wisdom of the Bible and morality fall victim to the lie of Marxism? You would wonder how that has occurred. I heard someone say a while back, um, just recently, that wisdom is wasted on the old. And I found that to be true. The meaning being that the young disregard the lessons learned by the old. So the old has wisdom. We we hopefully have wisdom, but those of us who do have wisdom, if in fact we do, it is left to waste because the young do not care about the old's wisdom. Why do the young people in this country specifically, but all across the European continent, all across the Russian area, why do the young so willingly and easily accept that they will be extinguished, annihilated upon their mere physical death? Why do they want to believe that? What about that is so appealing? All you need is a shallow remedial examination of basic concepts. If you do that, it'll, you'll destroy that kind of thinking. Spend a little time just studying any small thing in, in the scientific community or in the philosophies. You don't, it just doesn't take much energy, much less if you would spend some time in the Bible. It takes no energy, but why is it that this I will be annihilated, extinguished, whatever word you wish to use, upon physical death. Why does it prevail? Why is it a lure? What is the lure of the secession of being to so many young people? And the answer is, that's right. The answer is, it's a desire to evade judgment of sin or for sin. However, clinging to a misguided, unthoughtful notion will not affect the certainty of the trial, nor mitigate the sentence. There is only one way to escape judgment for sin. And though it is a grace-based gift of mercy, I'm going to say something controversial here. The way to escape deserved judgment is a grace-based gift of mercy. That grace-based gift of mercy is not compatible with willful depravity. Before you think I made a mistake theologically. It's not compatible with willful depravity in the sense that belief in Jesus Christ changes your mind. 
It is a grace-based gift of mercy that changes you and me and us. So why don't people want their minds changed? As they know, if I become a disciple of Christ, it will change me. They do not want their minds changed. They love their corruption. The longer you love the corruption, the longer you love your sinfulness, the more and more dark you become, and the less the inclination will be to reach for salvation. Okay? Enough of that. Where was I? Luke 14, 1, 6, our list. We're gonna, we should reread Luke 14, 1 through 6 and Numbers 15, 32. Get everybody back on the bus. So let's go ahead and start at Luke 14. That's where we left off. Oh, my goodness. Is this on film? Oh. Ah. I have a softball season coming up, which is hilarious and amusing to watch me try to play now. I've been preparing for it. I've decided that I need to eat more. Store up the energy. Yes, that's my plan. Not really. I've actually been exercising, but I have to be careful. Because what I used to do is not a good plan anymore. I break so quickly and easily. I have to do things very slowly. Running to first base. You have to put a sundial, stakes in the ground just to see if I'm moving. If I don't, if I don't hit it out, if I don't hit it off the fence, I'm out. I'm being thrown out by little kids from the parking lot now. That's how slow I am. So, just brought that up for who knows what reason. Luke 14, 1 through 6. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers. Look at the list. This is the breakdown for you so you can reacquaint yourself. Now it happened as he, that's Christ, went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath that they watched him closely. And behold, so now some incredible piece of doctrine is coming. Absolutely incredible. There was a certain man before him who had dropsy. To repeat, that is a swollen, probably a cancerous event. Cancerous caused the condition. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day, and they would not, or they could not answer him regarding these things. So we have silence again. Numbers 15, 32. I have another yellow pen in here somewhere, probably. Maybe not. going to try to catch it this time. Now the children of Israel were in the wilderness. They found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks, some of your Bibles will say wood, completely appropriate, actually more so correct, brought him to Moses and Aaron 
and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. So they didn't know what to do. This is a problem. This is a new problem. A guy gathering wood on the Sabbath. How is that a new problem? We went through all the questions last week or the week prior to this. What was he what was he doing out there? How come this is an issue? They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, "By the way, how much time did this take?" Is there any information left out that is implied? Because as you know, when the Jews write, they write they do not want to insult you and make it so that you're, it's obvious to you, because that would be insulting your intelligence and your wisdom and your understanding. So they leave things out. God chose them to write his Bible because he wanted it written this way. So I'm going to ask quickly how much time between how long did they have him under guard? How long did they wait before God came and spoke to them? Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. Why? All the congregation shall stone him. Why all the congregation? I don't need all the congregation, do I? Apparently we do. With stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones until he died. Now, I don't have time to repeat all of that. This week, it is on the internet now, apparently, maybe not. Is it on or not, Dave? I don't know. Last week, but when did I do 1532 through 36? I think it was the week before that. Okay, so that's on, correct? Those of you who are looking at me now can go find that somewhere in the ether. By now, I think all of you have figured out that I am searching for congruencies between Luke 14, 1 through 6 and Numbers 15, 32 through 36. I want to see a connection, or I'm going to make a connection actually today, between the ruler of the Pharisees at Luke 14 and the man gathering wood at Numbers 15, 32. I'm going to tell you these are the same kind of guy. Not the same guy, same kind of guy. They have a mutual thought process. And they're exhibiting it in both places. Clearly, I consider both men to be devious, exceedingly wicked, murderers, and liars. So I have a murderer at Numbers 15. I have a murderer at Luke 14. So it's obvious that both men have devoted many, many hours in constructing their plan. The guy that is out there gathering wood has spent a long time thinking about when he was going to do what he did. And he knew that Moses and Israel would not know what to do about it. He knew that this was going to be him and God in a confrontation. He had a plan. Both of them, the ruler and the man gathering wood, intended to implement this plan that is very similar, by the way, on the Sabbath. Doing it on the Sabbath is of particular significance to both men. 
The gathering of the wood and the presenting of the swollen dying man are by design a trap. The intention is to accuse God of being unjust. And if I accuse God of being unjust, I am accusing God of being what? Evil. Just by definition of unjust. If God is evil, then there is no salvation possible because there is no sacrifice possible. And in that, in, <coughs> excuse me, medicine. Each man, the ruler and the this man, believe that the trap is inescapable. An unexplainable, contradictory mystery, if you will. In both cases, God responds. He does here at 15, Numbers 15. He does it likewise at Luke 14. God makes a response. How this resolves is important because the principle being being portrayed in both passages is throughout the Bible. It's not just here. It is everywhere. I had a quick discussion with Dana and, and Supper Dave here prior during the pregame setup here for all the equipment. This is Genesis 15, once again. This is Matthew 26, 36 through 52. These, this discussion keeps happening. Is God evil? Is he the author of sin? God constantly says, I am not the author of sin and proves it. Identifying it when and where it arises is a fundamental. It's a foundational building block. We talk about the tower in Luke 14, uh, 28, building your tower, whether or not it's destroyed. This is a tower that most people have destroyed. Most Christians have destroyed. They don't understand this principle. And so when it arises in their own personal lives, they're wiped out by this. So this is a block in your tower, if you will, that you are building. And it's very important that you have it for your own security, if, you, if for no other reason, for your strength, for the wisdom that you can pass to your children. So we've come to a point now where it's necessary back in Luke 14 to take a closer look at this chief Pharisee, or this ruler. Notice that I have said ruler. I'll try the red pen, see if it works better than the blue pen. Ruler. Did you just pass over that? Don't pass over any detail ever to stop yourself. Make sure you have a firm understanding. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers. Ruler. And that, by the way, is the appropriate. Your Bible might say chief. It could say many things, depending on how the translator elected to translate. But ruler, I would tell you, is the most correct. It is the exact same... Uh, word that is used in John 12.31. Do you know what it says there and who it's talking about there? In John 12.31, Satan is described by Jesus Christ himself as the ruler of this world. It's the same word. So I now have a connection between the ruler of the Pharisees and Satan, which I would expect Every single time. It's not, uh, again, happenstance or coincidental. It occurs to me that the Pharisees are Satan's offspring, not just allegorically speaking. I'm sorry, allegorically speaking only, not physically speaking, but just as a uh, 
an example of who they are. So the ruler of the Pharisees at Luke 14.1 is representative of Satan. And that would be the case whether he was designated in Scripture as ruler. Uh, so regardless, he's like-minded, if you will. Therefore, the trap of the swollen man would bear great resemblance now to the fivefold I wills of Satan in an Isaiah What is it? 14, I believe. 13 through 15. I'd have to go look it up. We, we, we will probably do that. Anyway, Satan would certainly have been active at Numbers 15, 32 through 36, because God was revealing himself to Israel in powerful ways at Numbers 15. So now I begin to see I have a ruler of the Pharisees in Luke 14, I have a this man gathering woods that gathering wood on the Sabbath. I know Satan would be there. He'd have to be there. This is the nation of Israel. Highly unlikely that Satan and his angels were not watching and listening to God. Uh, God is manifesting himself there. He's also manifested himself in Luke 14, hasn't he? I've got God in both places in a very powerful way. That leads me to ask the very the basic Satan question. I probably should read this. I might go back and read some of this. Let me think about it. How am I doing? I'm doing pretty good. Here's here's a piece of great theological wisdom. Are you ready? Everybody sitting down. Numbers 15 is after Numbers 14. Wow. Yeah. Make sure when you do the the video, Dave, you put, oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow, this guy is something else. Who thinks like this? There's some brilliant insight, huh? I gotta put that on FaceTube. My face took your tube book. What is it? Inner tube. Whatever it is. It'll, it'll, it's instant virus, as I said last week. Numbers 14 is what? So before we get to this guy gathering wood, what's going on in Numbers 14? It's right before Numbers 15, right? All I have to do is take a look at the context. Numbers 14 is one of the great significant things that occurred in all of the Bible, certainly all of the Old Testament. What was it? Israel refused to enter into Canaan, the promised land. They said, we won't go. So Numbers 15, the guy gathering wood, has something to do with their refusal to go into the promised land. And the sentence for refusing to go is 40 years in the wilderness, Numbers 14, 34 through 35. God calls the generation of Israel that refused to go into the promised land evil, an evil congregation. So I have tremendous evil. And if I have tremendous evil with Numbers 14, then I have tremendous evil with Numbers 15. So that means who is there? Because there's tremendous evil. And I'd expect tremendous evil, wouldn't you? Have Israel going into the promised land. Satan would be there. His angels would be there. All the angels would be. We're on display for the angels. They came before us. Moses tells this to the nation. 
that they are evil and that they're going to be sentenced to 40 years of, of wilderness and they will die. And Israel mourns greatly. Okay, let's go ahead and take on that at least. Um, and we'll see if that will help hammer it in. I'll start at th- verse 39. 37 and 36, he says, the very men who brought the evil report to the land is, are going to die by the plague. That's what God says. So, now we're at 39. When Moses told these words to the children of Israel, the people mourned greatly, and they rose up early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. And what did they do? You can read it. They left the ark behind. Why would you do that? They left Moses behind. Why would you leave the Deuteronomy 18.15, like unto me, prophet, behind, and the Ark of the... Both of those. Moses, the type of Christ, the Ark of the Covenant, is gold-encased wood. Left it behind. They said, we're going to go up and fight the Amalekites and the Canaanites, but we're not taking the Ark of the Covenant and we're not taking Moses. Now, you have to start thinking to yourself, who would do such a thing? How do you get to that thought process, that conclusion? Let me finish verse 45. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. So after that occurs, then I have the, I have chapter 15. So chapter 15, if you wish to think of it that way, cause and effect, this is the effect of that cause. This is the result of those events in Numbers 14. The most incredible event probably in the history of Israel, outside of maybe coming out of Egypt. Refusing to enter the promised land is an amazing piece of doctrinal truth there. So after that is the laws of the grain offering and the drink offering, the laws of unintentional sins, and then intentional sin and the man gathering wood, and then finally the tassels on the garments, right? So that is your order of what we're discussing. And my question begins, what was Satan thinking when he saw all of this stuff? Because he's there. He, after all, again, is the ruler of this world. I'll put it a different way. He's the most high of this world. Isaiah 14, 14. I will be like the most high, he says. Notice how he says that. I will... Be like the Most High. That is Satan. How is Satan described by God? 
filled to the brim with wisdom. How smart is Satan? He is smarter than us. How complicated a sentence is that? That is a very complicated sentence. If you think you understand that sentence, what are the chances that you do? Not good. Have some respect. Remember Michael. Michael had respect for Satan, knowing how evil he was. As well as what his uh, original level of honor was, if for no other way to explain it. Have some respect for that sentence, because it is extraordinary. That is the final I will of the five I wills of Satan. And it is without dispute the most relevatory. It is the one that reveals the most of the five. Satan exposes his deepest thought in that one. And that is a very deep thought. All of them are that way. But this one is his deepest thought. And it contains his motive. I've asked you over the last year or so. Be able to explain the motive of Satan. It will help you so much when you see it. I will be like the Most High. Notice that Satan does not say, I will be the Most High. I will be like the Most High. How much intelligence is in that one little word? He does not have delusion, does he? Many scholars have concluded that it was Satan's, um, that um, this is Satan's delusion. That he is an uncreated being. You'll see that very popular in the creation science movement. That Satan said this stuff because he thought he evolved from primordial muck. That's not what Satan thought. As much as I appreciate that those people who are trying to uh, dispel evolutionary philosophy. Satan is not addressing that at all. They think it's a hallucination. And it explains Satan's decision to choose evil and that he's trying to replace God. If he was trying to replace God, that word word would not be there. He chose that word very, very carefully. He chose every word very carefully. I will. What's the tense? Future tense. He does not say, I am like the Most High, or I am the Most High, I will be like the Most High God. Every word perfectly chosen as much as evil can be perfect. Perfect evil. So he has no desire to replace God. This is very common. You'll read it. I don't think it is true. And obviously, if you've listened to me for a while, I don't subscribe to that line of reasoning at all. I concede that contemporary mankind has indeed embraced the deception that life is not created. Satan did not do that. Man has done that. Man is what? Stupid, yes. Satan is not. Evil, yes. Stupid, no. We are both evil and stupid, mankind. Satan would not have done, come to a conclusion that he was uncreated. 
It's not logical. It's not wise. As you know, life is not represented only by the physical aspects. I covered that just a few minutes ago. We're congealed, compacted, light energy, condensed foundationally. We're condensed light energy. Satan saw it happen. He saw the light energy hit the dark, submerged earth. Satan knew the spiritual reality, as does every angel. They can't, they can't unknow it. It's inherent in them. Satan knew one thing profoundly. So does every other angel. They do not have the capacity, the ability, the intelligence to create life. I can make, I, I could take a two by four and frame a door. That's a long way from creating life. Satan knew that he could not. Angels know that they cannot. So no, Satan did not seek to replace God as God. He sought to be like God. That's the key to all of that. So what does he mean? What is Satan's definition of like? Arriving at the meanings of the five I wills of Satan, their individual meanings and their collective meaning is a valuable key. When, we, when you have that key, you can dissolve these kind of confrontations that we see at Luke 14.1 and as we see at Numbers 15.32-36. Those, those confrontations are throughout Scripture where God Himself is face-to-face, if you will, with the ruler of the world or someone who's representing the ruler of the world, if not the actual ruler of the world. So God is face to face with a killer who seeks to kill. How is being like God and seeking to kill the same thing? Always underneath the surface is Satan's motive to be like the Most High in a specific mode or area. So, at Luke 14, 1 through 6, God himself is against the ruler of the Pharisees. God has walked into the house. Obviously, Jesus Christ and the ruler of the Pharisees, or the Pharisee ruler, uh, both have intentions. The Pharisee ruler even knew that Christ would be coming. How did he know? Christ being omniscient God, duh, knew the Pharisee ruler knew that Christ was coming. This, again, not coincidental happenstance. No element like that. Now, so don't ever think, well, Christ is walking around. Uh, don't go to these movies. Christ isn't walking around, decides, hey, there's a nice house. I smell bread. I'm going in there. That's crazy. That's so illiterate. I can't help you. The ruler of the Pharisees is not anywhere near, by the way, the, the level of evil is Satan. Or for that matter, Judas. Judas is extraordinarily brilliant and evil. Never underestimate Judas. It's foolish to do so. He the, the ruler of the Pharisees can't approach either Judas or Satan with respect to intellect. Satan entered Judas. I have a Judas-Satan alliance. It's unprecedented and unrepeated in all the Scripture until the Antichrist. Now you're into the, who's the Antichrist, right? I had a wonderful letter from Joni in Cincinnati. Hi, Joni. Joni suggested that, that uh, in a roundabout way, she says, I try to show 
your videos to my friends or your lectures. I let the, try to get them to listen to your lectures. Uh, and she mentioned that I'm a hard sell. I think I told you that a few weeks ago, maybe now. And she thought that uh, she gets the same look from everybody she introduces me to. It reminds her of the RCA Victor dog. He's got his head sideways listening to the big megaphone. There's no way anybody, they don't come back all excited. She thought that was, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I now have completely forgot why I brought Joni up. Oh, I remember now. She said, I have introduced some people to some subjects of yours. I will not tell them about Lot's wife. And it cracked me up. And, and she probably would be wise. Joni, if you're, I hope you're listening still. Uh, don't tell them about Judas either. But I think Judas and Lot's wife are, are obvious, but not too many people share that with me. And it's okay. I am no longer thin-skinned. It took a while. But uh, the same principle that is that applies to Judas and Satan applies to this ruler and applies to the man gathering wood. Profound evil, extraordinary intellects, a devious plan, a trap. And God has come. And he's going to challenge the accusations of Satan. And the same thing, by the way, with Job. If you read the book of Job, you see Satan and God confronted Again, and Job in the mist. Here I have Satan and God uh, and a guy gathering wood and the congregation of Israel. I've got God and the ruler of the Pharisees, if you will, uh, and a swollen man in the middle, in the mist. So uh, all of those are the same. We're going to have to do Job and deal with it as this section that I'm doing continues. Anyway, Jesus is in the house, a dying, swollen man. He's feverish. He's placed before him on the Sabbath. And now the trap has been set in place. It's active. have an active trap now. And everybody knows it, including God. Maybe not his disciples. Some of you last week in the post game already began to ask the obvious questions here. It's fantastic. Who touched this man, one of you asked. Remember, I asked, how close is this man to death? And that becomes, I think, a central piece. But you guys went even further or in the same general vein. Who touched him? And before you rush off to Leviticus 14 and Leviticus 15, uh, I, I need to reemphasize that this is a swollen man. Uh, sweating profusely in all likelihood, it is not a leprous or infected Man, a man that is leprous or infected with the bacteriological conditions of Leviticus 15. The bacteriological infection of Leviticus 15 is specific. Uh, that, that takes you to Adam, by the way. Uh, we'll deal with that some other day. This man at Luke 14, 1 through 6 is cancerous. Big difference. Nonetheless, the Pharisees had an adamacy with them. They were forcefully teaching that this man had his condition as a result of some hidden grave sin and therefore was ceremonially unclean. And if he is ceremonially unclean, what does that mean? If he can't be cleaned, what does that mean? That means he dies ceremoniously are ceremonially unclean, and he's unable to enter the kingdom. 
that's what they taught. By the way, the Protestant church, as well as the Catholic church, also taught the same thing. If you are sick, it is because you are unsaved and dying in your sin and you deserve it. That's still being taught today. There is no shortage of ignorance in the church, especially ignorance that results in financial benefit for the pastor and his staff, who, by the way, is usually his wife. And they have a nice home and a motor home and a boat. I am either the greatest embezzler of all time That's a true story, by the way, really fast. I watched a pastor drive out of Anchorage with a 50-foot motorhome pulling a 30-foot boat. Oh, my goodness. How does that happen? He went to the mission field. He later found out the mission field was on the Gulf Coast. Apparently, there's a lot of people who need a missionary out there in the ocean fishing. Anyway, enough of that. Let's phrase this another way. I have a dying man who was deemed to be a vile sinner deserving of his horrific slow death and he's placed before Jesus Christ. I asked last week, what if this man dies here? How close to death? I submit that he's very close. Not just close to his physical, very close to his physical death, but also he's very close to his eternal death, his second death, Revelation. 14. And God, salvation personified, salvation itself, Jesus Christ walks into the house as he always does, by the way, minutes remaining on the Sabbath, and he asks, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? That's what he asks. And no one says anything. Listen, if my children grandson, wife, family, friends, you guys, you're dying. You're minutes to live. And somebody walks in and says, is it lawful to heal this person on Christmas? Yes, it's lawful. Yes. And no one said a word. No one says anything. Ask why not. If the man dies... We're in an ashes of, ashes of the red heifer. I said Asher. That's the grandson. Ashes of the red heifer situation. Could Jesus Christ, if I'm right, if I'm right, and the guy is on the cliff side of death, doesn't get any better than that. But if I am, and I am, but let's pretend, okay, that I am. Could Christ have waited and let him die? Is that a problem? Resurrecting? Not a problem. But he doesn't. He didn't wait. Ask why, why not. Instead, he took, he touched, he grabbed the swollen man. And the swollen, God will touch an unclean person. Does it all the time. People who say, well, God couldn't look upon Christ because Christ was sinful on the cross. Oh my. God looks on sin every second, every millisecond. 
the sin is everywhere. Christ is God. God can't forsake God. Stop that nonsense. He took the swollen man. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, takes a hold of the swollen, swollen man. He touches him. He touches people. He does it all the time. And the swollen man is healed. And then God let him go. Let him go. And after he let him go, God answers aloud his own question with another question. Ha <laughs> ha! Christ effectively said, who would save his own child if that child had fallen into a pit? And no one answers. He answered his first question with the second question. Who would? He gives you the answer. Is it lawful? Who would save his child? Obviously, none of the Pharisees, the ruler of the Pharisees, they're going to let this, this child die. This is probably a Pharisee, as I said last week. They let him die. Said nothing. Let him die. We want him to die in front of you. Remember, this is a trap. Jesus Christ, in my opinion, reached down and took this man's hand and saved him. I believe, I suspect, that this swollen, dying man chose to stop being the bait in the trap. He heard the question, is it lawful to heal Fred? And nobody said nothing. Let Fred die. And if Fred dies, he's unclean. And if he's unclean, he's condemned. Let him die. And I think the bait heard that reached for Christ. And Jesus Christ, as he did on the cross, always, always, always takes the hand. It's what he does. It's who he is. How did it feel for the swollen man to hear no one advocate for his life? The bait then chewed through the ropes. And no one thought that Christ would take, or the bait would escape. We'll get to that next week. That Pharisee, the ruler of the Pharisee, it never occurred to him that the bait would make a run for it. But Christ knew he would. Anyway, now really fast. Numbers 15, 32 through 36. Actually, Numbers 15, 22 through 41. A man is gathering wood. He's bold about it. He just heard all of the prohibitions He heard all the laws considering unintentional sin. He heard about the grain offering, the drink offering. He heard about the, he saw the ten uh, men die who rejected God. And he, in full, absolute opposition to what God had just said, just spoken, soon after the refusal to enter the promised land in Numbers 14, after the sentencing of those men, the consequences of the 40 years of wandering in the desert wilderness, the juxtaposition of this man gathering wood is now placed in that critical information context. Who is this man? He's set in a trap. Well, we can figure out who he's not. 
He's not Moses. He's not Aaron. He's not Joshua. He's not Caleb. Let's see. Let's see who he might be. 1 through 4. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the children, because they're afraid they're going to get killed by the giants. And, and the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation, listen, the whole congregation, ah, wait a minute, the whole congregation now has to stone a guy. Pretty soon, a couple, one chapter away, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if we had died, if only we had died in this wilderness. But why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword so our wives and children The wives and children wouldn't be killed, would they? We'll get into what's happening in Canaan in a couple of weeks. Everybody knew what was going on there. It had to do with wives and children, by the way. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. And then, one chapter away, I got a guy collecting wood. Because it can't be any of the ten other spies. They're dead. And they brought an evil report. Why was the report evil? In any event, those ten men dead, Numbers 14.37. Somebody leads an attack without the Ark of the Covenant or Moses. Why would somebody lead an attack he knows is doomed? That wasn't a mistake. He didn't say, oh, maybe we'll leave the Ark and Moses behind and go fight. Who does that? He knows it's doomed, Revelation 19.19. Anyway, this man... I just slip that in. This man is now gathering wood on the Sabbath. And no one could explain it. Didn't know what to do with the guy gathering wood on the Sabbath. And God comes. And God and the this man are face to face. And I believe the entire event was discussed. It was a trial. All the evidence presented. What you got, what we got, is the sentence. The evidence is obvious from the context. So next week, by the way, the evidence explains the blue tassels. I can Once I figure out what the evidence was that was presented at the trial, and I look at the sentence, I understand why everyone in the congregation had to put a blue tassel, which they still do today. How many of them know what it means? But it explains the blue tassels and the stoning by all of the congregation. Next week, we will add more stuff. Let us rise and be dismissed.